Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson podcast. Mike here at the top of this week's episode to introduce this week's guest, and it's Charlie Pickering. Charlie has actually appeared on the podcast twice before. This is his third appearance. He first appeared on the podcast in April of 2015, uh, many, many years ago when the podcast was in its formative years, and he appeared again uh, just over a year ago now in the midst of Melbourne's big uh, lockdown of 2020. Um, He's back, though. He's back to talk about his brand new audio book with Audible, uh, The Time Traveler's Guide to Not Dying. He talks extensively in this episode about uh, writing and working on this Audible original little series. So definitely go and check out The Time Traveler's Guide to Not Dying, uh, a comedy audio experience. And check out Charlie's previous two episodes by scrolling up in your feed. And of course, if you want to watch Charlie's ABC series, The Weekly, you can find all the episodes of that on ABC iView. If you like Willosophy and you'd like to support Willosophy, head to patreon.com slash Willosophy for as little as a dollar a month, you get episodes one day early on a Sunday morning with no ads. Or you can go to tofop.com to check out all the episodes of Philosophy, Tofop, Two Guys, One Cup, and Fofop, the podcast we make here at Tofop Productions. And if you'd like to see all of the fantastic portraits that are done by our artist, James Fosdyke, you can find them all at Instagram at Willosophy Pod or on Twitter at Willosophy Pod as well. So go and give those a follow. Okay, that's enough from me. Let's head over to Will Anderson and Charlie Pickering for the third time on Willosophy. Enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, Returning Guest. Uh, Good to have him back on the show. But this is how the show starts, regardless of whether you've been on before or not. Uh, I ask who you are. So who are you? I'm a dad. Definitely a dad. I'm Charlie Pickering and I'm a dad. (laughs) Uh, That that also is helpful because just narrowing it down to I'm a dad would have really been the most vague (laughs) podcast introduction anybody has ever gone I just try to – I try to be honest – as honest – just about the feeling I have when you ask that question. I don't overthink it beforehand, and I think I got lost in the feeling for a second there. So I'm Charlie Pickering, and I am a dad. I'll say that. Hello, Charlie Pickering, who is a dad. Also, can I just say this? I think I bring this up every time I talk to you. I don't know if I've brought it up previously on the podcast or not. Uh, the star of one of the greatest film clips that has ever been made in Australia, which is <laughs> The Groove Terminator, which I watched oh, again mate. the other night. Which had another friend come through our house and it was one of those people that I thought would know you. And it turns out they were just someone who'd been within our friendship groups and just hadn't crossed your path at any stage. But despite the fact that we got to the resolution that they didn't really know who you were, I decided I was going to show them my favourite clip. Again, y'all can't see by Group Terminator to see, see if your performance held up. If they didn't know who you are, please to say, definitely holds up. Depend, don't need to know who you are to enjoy Can that Can I say, work. one thing I will say about that is um, very early in my comedy career, we were at a function. It was like the opening of a new stand-up venue in Melbourne. And we hadn't met. I think maybe you'd left a message on my voicemail at some point after I did a radio spot or something like that. But you said to me, like this is ages ago, really starting out, 
and you just said, great work on the Groove Terminator film clip. And A, it meant so much to me that you thought it was good at the time. It was like the biggest deal. And B, I'm not sure in your estimation I've matched that in 20 years of comedy. I think like that's, that's what really worries me is I, that was when maybe I should have just stayed with dance. I should have just done comedic dance. I like your old stuff better than you stuff. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Love the weekly. Thought this season was the strongest season you've ever done of the weekly. Thought it was absolutely amazing satire. But still, just occasionally, you know, when you're in the study, you're running us through one of those serious topics. You couldn't just put on a pair of tracky tacks and get out a rap mat and do some comedy dancing, could you? It should be. It should be my new, a, a new regular segment. You know, <laughs> it should definitely do that. Is there a show, and I don't want to like pitch it, you're here to actually plug something else, and we'll get to that in a minute, but is there a show in you rap battling the news of the week with somebody? So, like, maybe you wow. call in a Briggs or whatever, and you get, like, the news of the week, and you kind of do it as, like, you know, like, kind of epic rap battles of history style, but this is, like, just rap battles. This is how you get young people interested in the news. Is it? Old white it, men is rapping. It a dad rapping on TV? I mean, sorry, it just, it it sounds like the thing that my kids never forgive me for. That's that's what it feels like. Because it's really funny. My, my six-year-old is really into yeah. Phineas and Ferb at the moment. Um, and, and if you don't know Phineas and Ferb, it's pretty amazing. It's a Disney cartoon. It's very, very good if you're a six-year-old. But anyway... I had completely forgotten, but a few years ago, I did an online segment where I got interviewed by Phineas and Ferb. And Mm. so I was inside an animation talking to Phineas and Ferb, and I played it to my six-year-old, and it blew his mind. It properly blew his mind, and he thought it was the coolest thing in the world. If I rap on TV in the way you describe, I have a feeling I'll undo all of that good work. I think that it will be (laughs) self-sabotaging. I don't no, I understand. I understand the point that you're making. I would mount the argument there's probably enough stuff on the public record already that would embarrass your children. Yeah, I think that is true. That is definitely true. Ship may have already sailed. Horse may have already bolted, got on the ship and sailed away is what I'm suggesting. But can I just, before we get to your current project. Yes. The Weekly this year, and I think I tell you this every time I see you, but this, this last season of The Weekly, you and Mad as Hell, I don't know what it is, but I think you're the only... Two shows. You, Matt as Helen, John Oliver. So perhaps there is some DNA that is in common between those shows. But I think probably the only three shows that I saw during the lockdown period that not only dealt with the fact that there was no studio audience there, but I think bloomed into areas that you would not have ordinarily been able to cover in regards to satire and comedy because of the fact that there is no audience there. I just thought the way that you guys not only adapted to that challenge, but I think rose to the challenge and went into new areas because of this thing that could have been a negative your show was so like so much to be admired talk me through that oh i mean that's just so lovely to hear (laughs) and i I do really appreciate it and i have to say gruen as well adjusting without the audience and also having one member in a different city i think you did an amazing job uh with that as well last year Uh, i just we patched over what we did was we made it work like, I think that what you've done and Matt as hell's done and even John Oliver to a certain extent has done is almost done better work because there was no audience there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, that's awesome if that's true. What I'll say is uh, we just made a strategic call early that it had to be different. Like, like that we weren't going to just try and survive doing the same thing. It was 
just you got to like just felt like you had to do it differently. And, and for me, um, because so much of what I do is a mono, like traditionally when we've got an audience in the room, it's close-ish to stand up with clips. It's it's a monologue with an audience in the room, and all you're trying to do is hit the punchline that's going to get the biggest laugh or the big or a round of applause. And when you take that away, it actually means your measurement of success is different because there isn't a round of applause to get. There isn't a loud laugh in the room to get. So then you say, well, all right, so what does success look like? And I think you then go, well, do you know what? We can have a six-speed gearbox instead of a one-speed or two-speed gearbox here. We can say softer things, louder things, quieter things, things to the side. I can move between cameras um, and it just gives you different ways to make jokes land purely with the person sitting at home watching it. And I think that's probably what it comes back to is um, you take the studio audience out, you're pleasing one person sitting at home watching it, and that's going to change how you, how, you, how you do your job. It's, it's so true, though, because I, I noticed it with Mad as Hell the other week because they've gone back to a studio audience now. They're now in Melbourne. Melbourne can now have studio audiences. And I've got so used to watching it without a studio audience that when the studio audience was back in there, I suddenly was like, oh, I don't have the same sense of humor as this studio audience at all. Yeah. Like, there was jokes that I thought were hilarious <laughs> that at home when there was no audience, I was thinking hilarious, where suddenly when you got them in the studio, it didn't play as well to the live crowd. Yeah, and you're just like, so oh, that's, no. Now I'm distracted by the fact that I hate those 200 people and they're tasting comedy. See, now now you've made me realize that all I want to do is scripted, like, scripted um, sitcom. Because yeah, I just realized, like, I watch Arrested Development and love it. You watch Arrested Development and love it. There's no audience to tell us where the jokes are. We could be laughing at completely different shit and we both like right. that show. You know, like, although I, I gather we're laughing at the same shit. But I um, but it's funny, like... No, I, th- I think the point you make is very valid. And so there's a fellow by the name of James Colley, who some people might know. And uh, James Colley is the head writer over at The Weekly and he also uh, serves that role in a television show called Gruen. And so... Uh, he's a good boy, good boy, James Colley. And he has a bit of a theory that audiences get in the way of comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they can really ruin what we as comedic artists are trying to achieve See, you by know, making their judgments about it. I think you and I may have said that, but only if we've walked off stage after a tough hour at some point. You know, like a, that Wednesday, first Wednesday of the festival sort of hour, where you walk up and go, yeah, the audience just really didn't bring it tonight. But... um. But it's funny, I you know, I don't I, – I see his point. I think he really likes working in a rarefied, almost a rarefied, hermetically sealed environment more than giving it to a, a, a an audience in person. I think that's definitely true. Um, but uh, So James I'm, Colley, the reason I bring him up is this. Um, he because I actually am, I know what we're here to do. It's fine. <laughs> I was just mucking around a little bit at the start. It's yeah. okay. There's someone on the other line who's muted themselves and is like, when are they going to fucking talk about this audio book? That's what we're here to talk about. We'll talk about I want to hear about Groove Terminator. I want to hear about the fucking weekly. I want to hear about the fact that Charlie's got a big day plugging his audio book. Well, it turns out it's an audio book that you put together with none other than James Colley. See, I was being clever and just easing my way yes. into it. Tell us about this new project, Charlie. Um, it's it's an audible original podcast. It's um, it's called the Time Traveler's Guide to Not Dying, and it is the best way to describe it is this is the instruction manual and tour guide 
that comes with your Time Slide 9000 time machine in the year 2040. And as a condition of my parole in the future, and also as a bit of a corporate gig, I'm hosting this in- instruction, basically this audio instruction manual. And I have two correspondents who I send back in time to various um, time periods. And so what we do is it's actually, it's like an episode of Getaway where the destinations are in the past. Um, and I am a washed up future version of myself hosting this. I'm almost like the Alan Partridge of Charlie Pickering in the future would be the best way to understand it. And so it really marries like, um, it's, it's like there's a lot of historical content. You'll learn about historical periods, but it's also daft sketch comedy made with the, you know, like a modern view on historical things and set in a dark future where one corporation rules the world and I am... Uh, I'm on parole. <laughs> like I'm a, I'm a washed up ex criminal comedian in the future doing this as part of my work release. Okay, so okay, two questions. Yes, and we won't go too much into the project itself because I don't want to spoil the fun of it for people who are going to listen to it on Audible. But um, uh, let me ask you this. If we are going to look at the future and we have the two scenarios, one is that you are on parole for some crime you've been, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, you've committed and been uh, punished for, or that the world is basically controlled by one large corporation. Which of those do you think is a more likely futuristic scenario? Oh, I think the world controlled by one corporation is mm. is more likely. Like I... Um, or, or at least the closest to what the future is going to look like. I, uh, that said, I'm on any given day, I'm a bad decision away from being in prison. So I, you know, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be <laughs> above breaking the law, but I, um, you know, I, well, I think we've seen that governments don't really have an appetite to cross big corporations. I think that's been shown repeatedly. Um, you've got every reason to rein in Amazon, Facebook, and Google at the moment, and no one has the appetite to do it. You know, the, you know what we should do? Just let them get a bit bigger. Then they'll be easier to run. That's in. right. Once, Once they it, get really big. Get them all in one spot. You know, when they're just in one spot, <laughs> that'll be fine. But it's it's it was I mean, you saw that whole thing when the government went to war with Google and Facebook. And 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 we're tr- we're going to insist about about their news content. And in the end they rather than going this is a rule and you have to stick to it, they go yeah, so you just negotiate a settlement with those other media companies and have it separate to government so whatever happens, you don't pay any tax. You know, it's, it was just, it's amazing how the government, any government anywhere will stand up to a, a social media giant for about half a second and then they're scared to do it. Well, I mean, it's good that we're you know getting ready for this environment where one company runs everything. So anyway, uh, download this on Audible, which is available, of course, on Amazon. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it'll be all good fun. Um, I can make jokes right. about well, that, I've Charlie White, because they're paying him. I've got to say, given this is an Amazon company and given they were funding it, <laughs> they were very good about us having a dark corporate overlord as the main character. And they're just called the corporation. But it is safe to say Amazon was definitely in mind when we were when we were writing it. Well, that's the great thing about these big companies. They're big enough that they can make fun of themselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, so, okay, if you are going to be arrested in the future, 
Um, what is the most likely scenario under which you would f- like, it doesn't have to be necessarily a crime that you're committing, but like, it might be something that you get stitched up for, but I'm not talking about in this book. I'm talking about IRL. If you were going to extrapolate the rest of your life and go through some scenario where you ended up in prison, whether it be like Wesley Snipes tax evasion style or something like that, what is the most likely reason Charlie Pickering would end up in prison? Do you think? I mean, tax tax sounds like I'm I'm, I'm comfortable paying tax, but I'm often late. Mm. Like I like I, you know, my bass can often be late, and so there's probably a chance I just miss a tax return, and that that, that mm. sounds that sounds like something I'd do. The other possibility is that um. It's littering, um, and I say that because uh, through lockdown, I've become very used to just ordering everything to be delivered, mm-hmm. and I have more cardboard boxes than my recycling allowance, and so I often have to find like various skips around my neighbourhood to sneak some boxes mm-hmm. into to clear the cardboard boxes. So I have a feeling there might be some large sta- large scale littering sting operation. And I get busted for dropping cardboard boxes in 20 skips around my neighbourhood. I don't think this is going to be a sting. I think this is going to be a citizen's arrest by Craig Rucastle on behalf of the ABC. <laughs> it's going to be an episode of War on Waste. Yeah, it's going to I be know. like John Safran, Ray Martin style. He's going to be around at your joint going, look at all this cardboard that Charlie Pickering's wasting. He definitely has a higher moral high ground. Like He has got a moral high ground here at the ABC, but I like to think I'm more relatable. I think I think that's true. <laughs> I think we've all, so I think me. more people have wondered what the fuck am I going to do with this cardboard box than have thought how can I get more more coloured bins in my workplace. Uh, now compost. Have you ever thought about compost? Because you know, like cardboard's very good for compost. I didn't. I wasn't aware that cardboard was good for compost. So well, maybe I'll do. That. Oh yeah, absolutely. You want to mix your cardboard in with your like uh, kind of wet plant matter to mm. so kind of balance out your compost. Mm. Can you tell I live in the country now? Yeah, I know. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, but already it's sounding like something that's not a hobby for me. That doesn't sound like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't suggest it's a hobby for me either. <laughs> it's something I'm doing to try to help the planet. Not, I wouldn't I a, say that's like, you've got a new hobby. It's mashing up my leftover veggies into some old wet cardboard. <laughs> yeah. No, but it sounds like an expenditure of time that would require some level of interest. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm, um, that sounds a bit cold, but I just don't think it's me. Okay. Well, time travel, you know, is a passion of mine, and I'm absolutely fascinated by the idea of time travel. And uh, so when you were setting up your time travel universe did you have any sort of rules or laws or like you know kind of theories of time travel that you based it on yes i mean we had to come up with some rules that would make the show work and the fact of the matter is if um if people are taking tours and and that's within the show like uh, my two correspondents one's played by claire hooper the others by frank Mm. woodley and they are each taking two different travel packages back to different time periods and one is a luxury travel package and one is the budget travel package and spoiler alert the person on the budget travel package always dies um that but that's mm. history basically if you're on the budget package of history you're going to die but um so what we had to figure out was how do you get people traveling back in time without completely restructure you know if, if it's like commercial air travel or you know you can tra- everyone can have a time machine and go back in time how do you do it without rewriting right. history and so what we we invented the causality engine which when and and the, throughout the show there's lots of little instruction portions of me teaching you how to use your time machine and 
which are based on the um, Mike Hammond instruction. You know the um, the Foxtel. You know the Foxtel how to use your Foxtel channel. You know that had, was it Mike? No, yeah, I think Mike, it might have been on. Mike Hammond. And Mike Hammond. Mike yeah. Hammond was one but of those I, I guys, think- those Australian entertainers. Good guy, by the way. But he was kind of a. I always felt like there was like a glass box at Foxtel that said, in case of emergency, open this, and Mike Hammond was in it. Because he was just one of those dudes yeah. who was just like, oh, we'll get a Hemsworth to do this now. Oh, we can't afford a Hemsworth? Yeah. Okay, Mike Hammond's still here. He's, <laughs> he's still out the back, ready to go. So what I remember is there was this one channel. This is a digression we'll cover, but there was this one channel which was just Mike Hammond explaining how to use your remote and the IQ box. And then when they upgraded the IQ box, they had to film it again. So it was like he worked every time they upgraded that. You know, like he came in and filmed it every time they upgraded the hardware. So anyway, there's a, there's portions throughout it where I'm showing you how to use your time machine, much like Mike Hammond showed you how to use Foxtel. Um, and, in, and in one part, I remind everyone that they have to turn on the causality engine, which allows them to travel through time without changing changing. Uh, history as we know it and the way that we explain that is a scene where I basically shame one of my correspondents who forgot to turn it on went back to Austria in the 30s in the 20s um, rejected Adolf Hitler from art school and basically caused (laughs) Hitler to happen and uh, and and so that's the explanation of well Actions have consequences. Again, that's a that's a lot of blame on one guy rejected from art school. <laughs> a lot of people have been rejected from art school and not overreacted in that way. Yeah, no, so- that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and I think Hitler's childhood probably has a lot to do with it as well. Um, and th- there's a lot. There's lots. Look, I'm not the first to say it. There's a lot going on with Hitler. And um, it wasn't just one. Th- it wasn't just yeah, one thing. Just, just, just a lot going, lot going on with Hitler. It's, he's a chaotic figure. Um, but I. So anyway, we just established this reality where you can go back, you can meet anyone from history, you can talk to them, mm-hmm. uh, but you could do it without rewriting history. And so that they were the rules that we had. Okay. So let me ask you this question then: If you could go back in history. Because I always ask about time travel on this show, mm. obviously. But if you could go back in history under the rules that you've set up in your universe. And so just go and you know, see someone, talk to somebody. It doesn't uh, affect history as we know it. Who is it that you would want to go and see, want to go and visit, want to go and talk to? Um, that's, a, that's such a good question. Like, And there's so many different ways you can, you can go with a question like that. I... I've always been really fascinated with Winston Churchill because he was drunk the whole time. Like, he was probably the greatest example of a high-functioning alcoholic. Mm. Like, he ran World War II. (laughs) Like, he Mm. ran that show and, in you know, disproportionately remembered as the guy who, you know, saved the world in a lot of ways, but was had crates of champagne under his bed and like was dr- mm. just drinking the whole time. I'd just love to witness that in person. I'd just love to see how that works. By the way, what a what a great way to be a high functioning alcoholic too with like bottles of champagne. Crates. Under you. Like crates of champagne. It's not even like a sneak it's not even like yeah. a sneaky vodka in your orange juice, is it? Like you're just getting out well, your crate of champagne. I've got to make some big decisions it was a in the morning. Um <laughs> Champagne have a Winston like one of their 
their premium bottles is a uh, the Winston Churchill. Like a, there's the there's the Churchill, and that came because he drank their champagne, and it's almost like, you know, uh, it's almost like a coffee shop loyalty card. It's like he just drank so much of their champagne they named one after him. They were like, you kept us going through the war. We couldn't shift champagne in France. But well, uh, you know what I love too is like quite famously, the Queen loves a stiff cocktail. Like like often a couple before lunch. The Queen will have a couple of very stiff cocktails before lunch. And there's obviously those famous meetings between the Queen and Winston Churchill. Can you just imagine the two of them just absolutely f- like you think of these legends? Of history, you know, the yeah. Queen of England and Sir Winston Churchill, and just the two of them just fucking stonk it in a room, rabbiting on about the war. And yeah, and, and you can imagine them feeling like it's the one safe conversation in their fucking life, too. So you can imagine the Queen just going, well, it's fucked, isn't it? You know, just like, I just love the idea of that. And, and it's funny, like, the nature of alcoholics is. In a lot of ways, it's it's similar like habitual pot smokers. It's like you you can tell yourself, "I've got stuff to do, I'm not going to do it." But the moment someone gives you permission, you know, like the moment the Queen says, "Do you want a drink?" or Churchill says, "Do you want a drink?" You know, they'd be on it. It'd be like, "Well, it's ten thirty, let's go." You know, ten thirty in the morning, but let's go. Winston gets had- up off his crate of champagne that he's been sitting, <laughs> cracks well, one it, open. There's this museum in London. It, it's the um. It's the Ministry War Rooms Museum, and it's actually underground near Westminster where they had all the meetings. And you can see all the original maps from World War Two when they were moving squadrons around. And they've got his bed there. It's like a little camp stretcher bed. Um, it's where he actually slept most nights during the Blitz. And there is a crate of champagne under his bed in the museum. It's like it's like the historical accuracy is amazing. So it's you know, so I think that I, I think that'd be really. That'd be really interesting to me. Like I, um, and yeah, why not? Let's just go with that. <laughs> okay. Um, audio book. So yes. you've obviously written, you know, uh, book books with words on pages. Book books, original books. Yes. <laughs> this is like the modern twist in a book. Um, you're also married to a woman who I think has uh, written a couple of books to some middling acclaim. Um, how does she feel about? <laughs> how does she feel about you, you know, like mucking around in the audiobook area well, of the market? Yeah, I mean, so here's. Are you bringing shame upon your household? Is what I'm asking. I guess no more than I already have. Will no, no. more than I already have. But, but I. Um, my wife, Sarah Krasenstein, is like she's a proper author. She writes proper yeah. books and, and wins awards. Award winning you know, proper books. <laughs> proper proper books. Like proper. Four years work into a book. You know, like proper books. Yeah, what's um, what's got more laughs in it? This book, this audio book or the trauma cleaner? Just definitely give us a trauma, trauma cleaner's got some wry, some very wry takes on trauma, long term trauma. No, um, I, it, this definitely has more yuck yucks. This, I think, technically, Audible would call call this an Audible original podcast, mm-hmm. and and so it's not, it's not like the telling of a story, which a, a lot of their audiobooks are, the great audiobooks are, but this is a lot more. Um, it's almost like a sketch. It's a sitcom on on a podcast. Really, would be be the way I describe. It. It's got full audio production. Like I remember, um, mutual colleague of ours, um, John Casimir helped produce it and there was a week where we debated what a realistic sound effect was for 
traveling through time for the time machine. And it's and it's amazing how you can be very forthright and have firm views about what time travel sounds like. Just going, it's my favorite. It's my favorite argument is like when people are like, oh, this one's a realistic look at time travel and this is an unrealistic look at time travel. And I'm like, until there is time travel, they are both unrealistic looks at time travel. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a very famous book about Hollywood that is called An Alien Wouldn't Say That, which is about the dumb things that are said in meetings. So good. So good. You know, I, I think one thing I do like about our version of time travel in this is the mundaneity of it. This is this is consumer, and we'd say that you know in the first introduction, it's like the corporation is the only name in consumer time travel uh, or domestic consumer time travel, and the ideal, uh, the idea that you can have a time machine at home and it's like an appliance, and the various trips are like in-app purchases on your iPhone, feels to me the way time travel will feel one day. So that's what what I'm saying is. Ours is the most realistic time travel. <laughs> so you started with this idea of I'm Charlie Pickering and I'm a dad. Well, actually, you didn't. You started with I'm a dad and then added as a caveat also I am Charlie Pickering. So let's yes. talk about being a dad and, and why you just led, you know, off, off. Like you said straight away when I asked you who you were, the first thing that came out of your mouth was I'm a dad. Why? I'm, it, it's interesting, probably because it's a Monday, mm. and you get the kids on Monday. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> every <no>. second Monday. <laughs> no, it, because I've unfortunately it's a press day, so enjoy the yeah. car, kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, because I've just had the weekend with with the kids, and so it, it's like really fresh in my mind. You know, like spent spending heaps of time with them, um, and also just come off a holiday as well. Like went away for. Um, sort of 10 days with the kids and, and my wife as well, um, obviously. Uh, and so it's just really quite fresh in my mind at the moment. I think that would be it. And also it's a, it's a, dominant, it's a dominant role that I have. I, th- I think um, uh, and the more, the more you make it a priority, the better you do. You better do it. But, but I guess that's like all jobs, <laughs> I suppose. Well, uh, here's what I'm interested in because you're getting the kids. Well, your eldest is what? How how old now? He's almost seven. Almost. Yeah. Seven. So this is you're starting to kind of go. This is the sort of dad I am to a young, like to a young person, rather than to just like a baby or a toddler, right? I mean, yeah. I understand those are very important years, but this is like this is another human now who talks and walks and has their own friends and spends hours of the day with you not around with other people doing other things and forming other opinions and all those sort of things what sort of dad are you finding yourself to be um i think i'm i'm a really i'm a friendly dad but i'm also i'm stricter than i thought i would be like yeah. i and and a bit of it is because my son is actually quite responsible by nature like and he's very good at following rules and instructions. So when he steps outside that, I I kind of come down on it pretty hard. But that's it's kind of a view I have of parenting of having firm boundaries and allowing anything within it. And I and I and but to do that you have to keep the boundaries strong. Um so I think that's but more than anything, I just like I take seriously my job of just making him the best version of himself that he can be. 
You know, like just him really enjoying who he is, finding it, being passionate about it, and then giving every opportunity I can for him to just make the most of that and to really enjoy it. And um, and we'll see what that means down the track because that probably means like helping whether it's lots of studying or lots of sport or what you know whatever it is that that gets in the mix of them just being the best version they can. But the other like the other two the two main jobs I have is number one try and teach him to make good decisions when I'm not there. I think that's the you know it's pretty obvious, but it's really fucking important. And trying to find a way for him to not make mistakes that I made. You know, if I go, hey, I've made a bunch of mistakes, I'll warn you about them and you can avoid them. And just knowing that he won't fucking listen to that. Like, you know, until he makes them for himself, it's not going to work. But I just have to try. You know, I just have to try to help him to not make mistakes. I mean, well, to not make too many mistakes. You well, know and not, just do. not make the same dumb ones I did. Go, hey, I've yeah. already tried all them. It's dumb. Go make, make some dumb mistakes. ones of your own. Make some yeah, dumb make mistakes some... I haven't actually thought about at the moment. That, so how do you prepare, like, you know, a kid for that, though? Because this is the point, right? This is the first – this is not the 13-year-old version or the 17-year-old version or the whatever, but he is now off in his – own world with his own friends playing in his own way doing things that you can't supervise so how is it that you do guide those interactions around decision making because i mean again also you know kids they make bad decisions like your brain isn't fully formed so yeah so what what i try to do is i i I think it's actually quite useless just telling a kid off or you know like just saying that was wrong or don't do that. Stop that. When a kid makes a mistake or does does something wrong, I think you should just talk to them about it so they understand why that's a rule, so they understand why what they did wasn't right or why that was a mistake. Or, um, And I think that makes a lot more sense if they understand it because I think just arbitrary rules don't have a lot of meaning. But if you can explain why things are a certain way, A, it makes your rules seem more credible. Or it makes, you know, consequences seem real and more credible. Um, And it also means that they will start to build an understanding of how to rationalise reasons for certain behaviour and and reasons for not doing certain things. And and it's that reasoning I think is important. But I think you have to respect your kids a lot that they can understand more than you think they can and that they're smarter than you think they are and so you can trust them with some bigger ideas and thinking them through, they will get there, you know. Um, and every, everything I've seen reinforces that, that kids are heaps smarter than we think they are. You wrote a book about your father and his involvement in a prank war, a long-running prank war uh, with his friend. And uh, if your kids end up writing a book about you, some observation they have of you and growing up with you, what are they most likely to be writing a book about? That is a haunting question, Will. I'm now going to completely self-consciously conduct being a parent from now on with no comfort whatsoever. It's just it's just so bad. Given that, like, my son will absolutely write a book because both of his parents have written books, so I am fucked. Or, or might um, be the opposite. Might like grow up to like completely reject that, and you're like, like, I'm never going to read a thing for the rest of my life. I'm going to do something yeah. that just does not involve reading. Um. 
Look, I, I think it is just it'll just be about me as a well-intentioned idiot, basically. Mm. Like I, I, I could not be more like Clark Griswold if I tried as a dad. Give us from an the vacation music movies, like. We went away for 10 days down the coast and the drama of me packing the car, like loading the car up for a road trip down the coast. And it's like halfway through and I'm getting too stressed and, you know, like I'm getting getting really like worked up about it and angry at how much has been packed. And I'm like, I stuck to what my limit was. Why didn't other people stick to, you know, like we had rules. Why is this going bad? And it's like 100% like, you know, like the, one of the beautiful depictions of um, Chevy Chase is that, dad figure particularly in the original vacation movie is the way the pressure of being responsible as the dad like you've got the aspiration of doing the holiday well and the pressure of it means that you take it so seriously you can take the joy out of the situation as well so it's like i would always just catch myself getting too stressed about doing something the right way rather than just letting it happen so i think like i think there would be it would be something like that, the, like the dad that tried too hard to do things the right, like the way they should be done, with no knowledge, by the way, no knowledge of how to do it. Like we've taken up fishing. I never did fishing, but I talk. I've watched a lot of YouTube videos, and I've bought some very expensive equipment. So and so now I know how we're meant to be fishing. And it's just, it's just ridiculous. It's so stupid. You know what we need to do with this? Take the fun out of it. We yeah. certainly don't need to just get a stick and like a piece of rope and a worm <laughs> and let kids have some fun in nature with their imagination. No, no, no. I have hired a trawler. You guys are going to work the nets. Boy, <laughs> the we're boot, not going home until we've caught a marlin. <laughs> the boot of the car is full of burly, so you can't put any suitcases in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I think that's that's pretty accurate, and I'm really glad we had this chat because I'm really gonna really gonna work on that. I just realized. isn't this about though? I mean, I think so much of our life. I think you're you're giving us a very small example of what is a much bigger problem in our lives, which is that we forget what the intention was. The intention was for you to have a lovely holiday with your family and for you to all have like a good time and just get to hang out with each other and create memories together. The intention wasn't to pack perfectly. The intention wasn't to like, you know, catch the biggest fish in the world. It was just, and like the minute you start spoiling it by going, well, you haven't done anything perfectly. You're like, the intention was, no, 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 now we're all mad at each other. (laughs) Now no one's having a good time. (laughs) This is not working at all. It's so true. But then it's really funny, like in, Intention, intentions are pretty. That's a rich vein to consider in the world. Like so much of, I reckon so much, so many flare-ups on social media or controversies are a failure to take intention into account in, in a lot of ways. Or I, I think we're we're really quick to assume the worst intentions of people as well. You know, I it feels like there is a we're lacking. We jump we're, jump we're to the worst. I think that's it. Like, so tell me more about this because I'm aware today that you've got a publicity day and we're on limited time and we've already taken a, a lot of it with me just talking about Groove Terminator as usual. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, talk to me about particularly online because I think this is the manifestation of it seems to be online. But mm. I will go on social media now and 
everyone just is starting every conversation at nine out of ten. Like that's where they start. And, yeah. And it just like give me your observations of where we're at as a society. Well, yeah, I think that's I think that's a good way of describing it. I think we're just um, we're just way too quick to anger. And I think it's like there's a rudimentary part of it, which is there's no nuance in text, particularly text written with brevity. There's no nuance. So I, the it's hard to tell if someone's being sarcastic or joking or whatever. To give you an idea, on the weekend, I, I d- deleted the tweet because it was misinterpreted, right? So I tweeted a thing, and it was genuine. I, I meant it in all sincerity. I said, hey, Sydney, ho- hope you're holding up okay. Because I feel very sympathetic for Sydney going into lockdown. I went through 155 days of it last year. Um, and I tried to have a joke in there mm. because I'm a comedian. And dangerous also, Already yeah, no, but that's areas. it. So all I said, all I said was, I hope you're holding up okay. And just remember, just because you can go to IKEA doesn't mean you have to go to IKEA, right? And, and I meant that more as a comment on IKEA. Said thank yeah. you very much. Thank you very much for that polite advice. We really appreciate the experience that you've been through, and I know that you're actually just being supportive. And as a comedian, you're putting a little joke at the end. Everything's fine. Congratulations. You know what? I'm going to give that a little like. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I imagine happened. Yes. Yeah. Yes. On a, a large scale. Just but people being like properly aggrieved and hurt, <laughs> not just angry like go fuck yourself no. stuff. Like really like. Yeah. Um. Eloquently saying, "Go fuck yourself." Mm. Um, <laughs> <it> was, and, <laughs> um, and and it, that's just like a tiny example. And it's like, do you know what? Talking about intentions, I genuinely set out, yeah, to say, "Hey, thinking of you, Sydney," because it didn't mean the world to me when everyone was doing that when I was stuck in lockdown. But now and then, it was nice that people said nice things about, "Hey, really feel sorry for you, Melbourne." You know, like, and it's funny. What I learnt was. Whilst Melbourne has something of a gallows humour around a lockdown because of what we've been through, I don't think Sydney's achieved a a sense of humour about it yet. You know, like, and and I'm not saying, hey, cheer up, lockdown city. What I'm saying is, like, everything in this world, we develop a sense of humour around it. Like, war, death... Terrible things, we find a way to joke about them and it makes them better. But what I'll say is Sydney's Sydney's a little ways off. <laughs> it was the, well, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. And there's been yeah. some time since your tragedy, so you've got to comedy, but they yeah. were living through their tragedy. I've called it the reverse Bradbury because basically what it looked like was like essentially everything fell over, Stephen Bradbury slides past then suddenly realises there's a whole other lap to go. In the meantime, <laughs> falls over. All the other guys have got off the ice, slide yeah. past him. Essentially, it hurts a little in that moment, I would think. Yeah, yeah I think um, that's but, absolutely true. Uh, external to your own like people coming after you for your own observation, and I see a lot of that online at the moment, which is just like everyone, if you can't handle somebody a, being nice in that situation or B, even joking in that situation. Perhaps online is not the place for you. Like maybe you're at a level of like anger and upset at the moment where perhaps it would be good to just step away from the computer if stuff like that. Because you are going to see stuff like that if it's going to be too much for you. But I do think at the moment everyone is so angry. Maybe the computer is the only place that they 
feel like they are able to have some power. It feels like the only place that they are able to have, you know, somewhere to express this anger and they're sick of being ignored perhaps. Yeah, I think that's really true. I, and I think also the nature of um, a COVID lockdown is everything else disappears and it's you and your computer. Like in so you know, it's not like you can focus on your other interests and go to your pottery lesson or, you know, like that was a pretty random other interest. But that you you can't do all the other things you normally would do and, and your computer is the thing that's there, you know. I, 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 it's... I, and I don't. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a conscious decision by any means. For people, it's it's habit formed, and it's it's the easiest thing is just go and scroll on Twitter and try and take my mind off this room that I'm in again, and then I'm going to get angry at people. You know. So we're at a point now where I think nobody can really say like anything like you know i mean i you, you see and I, I don't mean that in the sort of sky news oh you can't say anything anymore i just think that people's you, it's almost impossible to get something right at the moment yeah <laughs> you're, you're th- even if you <laughs> thought that through in every way there'd be somebody who'd be ready to point out that you had overlooked some aspect of it is there a point where that does become damaging to the way we communicate with each other? Take out the sort of old school, you know, oh, political correctness has gone mad, you can't say anything yeah. anymore. But is there an end point of this where even those people are right to a certain extent, which is that discourse gets to the place where people won't say anything for fear of, you know, it being, you know, put put in the you know the public square and having rotten fruit fruit thrown at it i i don't know the answer to this by the way because i traditionally would, would have always said oh come on those people are absolutely overreacting like you can you can say whatever you want these days you just have to you know beware the consequences of your words but it's funny when you give me the example of you know what you said the other day i saw that tweet i thought it was funny and i actually thought it had a pretty good point to it which is something that the leaders don't say, which is here are the rules. You can have five people at your house or you can have 15 people at your house. But just because we've said you can have 15 people at your house, during a pandemic when things are spreading, it would still be better if you didn't have 15 people that's, at your that's house. That's right, yeah. Don't, <laughs> it don't felt like actually go, a reasonable point. <laughs> it's, don't say that and go, fuck, I better organise a party. Like that's not, right. that's not the mentality. Um, yeah, I, but do you know what? I, I think we have to recalibrate our understanding of the, getting cancelled and, and all yeah. of that, which is... Uh, for for cancelling or for backlash to be harmful and to um, limit discourse, you have to care, or you have to decide to that that back that blowback is going to dictate what you do. Um, and I kind of see, for example, on the weekend, people getting angry at that tweet. The only reason I took it down was, oh, some people it seemed like they were sincerely hurt by it, not offended, but they were like. Yeah. It was it was unhelpful in a way I'd planned to be helpful, and I was like, "Well, I haven't achieved my intention. I'm gonna, I, and I don't care that much about this fucking tweet. Yeah. It's an IKEA joke." Um, but what I what I will say is that I reckon if you're gonna get butt hurt about everything you see on the internet, I think we have to start seeing that as people choosing not to be part of your discourse, as opposed to them telling you to change your discourse. So I think it's a way that people are stepping out of the herd, if that makes sense. 
Um, Charlie, I know we have limited time today, so I'm going to ask you one final question and then I will let you go. Um, So uh, there is a new question that I've added to the podcast since you were last on. So I've got to ask you that question and we'll finish with that. Great. Uh, So on my desk, I have as close to an inspirational saying as I would go. Uh, It says, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? And the, the way that I've interpreted that in my life, I'll tell you quickly first, and, and it'll go to the question that I'm going to ask you. If you were guaranteed of something being successful, so you can take that out of the equation, it is going to be successful. So now you just get to design what that ideal thing is that you would like to do. Success already guaranteed. So I ask you this question. If you were guaranteed of success, uh, what would you what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? Um, it's a, such a great question. Um, and I'll, I'll leave aside really altruistic things like cure cancer because like- Oh, no, no. This is personally for you. I yeah, want it like, for you. I, and is this professional or anything? Is it- Anything. Um, wow. I mean, oh. It's really, it's, it's very difficult. Um, I think I have to get back to my first answer, which is just I'd be the be the kind of father that be be actually be the best kind of father I possibly could, but actually achieve the goals I've set myself as a father. I think would be would be it. Be the kind of father um, that my dad was for me, and. To be able to look back and say I did a good job, I did I did a really good job of that, and I know that like it's that's it doesn't feel that is aspirational because there's Academy Awards as well. But I um, you know, I think if I achieved being well, that's, the kind that's of why they've I'd got like to have to be, an Academy Award for best dad. I mean, like you can right. buy a world's greatest dad trophy in any shop. They've <laughs> finally got to <laughs> award that title to the best dad in the world. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> But I think, like, I think it would have to be that. Like, there are things I want to do professionally, um, and they'd be great. It'd be great to try adventurous, creative things, knowing they wouldn't fail. That'd be wonderful. But I think, um, I think if I nail the dad thing, I'd be pretty happy. Well, Charlie Pickering, uh, inaugural winner of uh, World's Greatest Dad official title, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what, give the Audible podcast series uh, a plug one more time. Tell people about that. So, Audible.com.au forward slash time it's the time traveler's guide to not dying and it's just super funny an amazing team put it together and you'll learn a lot about history in ways that you haven't before like we go to the witch trials of salem we follow the space race from both the russian and american perspective we get to know Marie curie the most successful scientist in history only person to win two nobel prizes in two different scientific disciplines no one else has ever done it um and we tell her story and you learn everything you need to know about Genghis Khan. And we do it much like Getaway, the TV show. It's like Katrina Roundtree meets Genghis Khan. I think that's the best way of describing it. Charlie Pickering, thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks, Will. Listener.